0: My name is Howard and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. My home group is the uh, Big Book Men's Stag Meets on Mockingbird Lane in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. And my sobriety date is August the 4th, 1972. Mike, thank you for the terrific talk. I'm not going to give as good a talk as Mike gets, so don't expect me to. <laughs> Mine's going to be approximately six times longer than his, though.
1: <laughs> I want to thank
0: Tim for the honor of being invited to come here and speak. I'm, I, uh, I'm very glad to be asked, and I'm very glad to be here. Now, that doesn't mean I'm good at it. It just means I like to do it. Uh,
1: it's
0: a highlight of my life, and, uh, uh, and I'm really, uh, really enjoy it, and I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, I want to thank all the other speakers this weekend. Uh, they were all better than I am, and uh, the ones tomorrow are going to be the same way.
1: <laughs> but there
0: ain't nobody going to like doing it better than I do. <laughs> And I also want to mention uh, uh, the fact that the guy who 28 years ago, 27 or 28 years ago, first asked me to Chucko, who's moving up here, Chucko Connell, who's moving up here from Santa Maria. And uh, about 27 years ago, we were talking at what was our home group in uh, Culver City, California, and I told him before he drinks to give me a call. I think nobody ever called know, how I tell everybody that nobody ever calls me but before you drink you may call and, and he said I will and, and he called me and he said I'm going out to drink but I promise you I'd call it ain't gonna make any difference but I'm calling and before the conversation is over he said I'm not going to go drink and if I think I am I'll call you back and he asked me to be sponsor and I'm still his sponsor so I'm honored that he's here, and I love him very much, and I've been to his, his, his kids were 12 years old, and I was at their wedding when she was 20, and now she's got a 20-year-old, 21-year-old son, so uh, it's been a hell of a ride, and uh, I love you. Uh, now, I'm going to quit on time. Because I gotta go to the bathroom as bad as you
1: do,
0: and I'm gonna quit on time. But God knows when it's gonna start.
1: <laughs>
0: I haven't started yet. I look at my lot, my watch a lot when I'm talking. I don't look at my watch to see what time it is, I look at my watch to give those of you that are worried about it a sense of optimism (laughs) that I care what time it is. Fact is, I don't care, (laughs) but I want want you to, you know, just relax and and, uh, say, hell, he's going to quit on time. I am. I'm going to quit on
1: time. (laughs) On
0: time is when I'm through. Also, while I'm telling stories that don't count on my kind. I don't know how many of you know Walt Murray, but Walt Murray and Mary got married last Sunday. I was the best man. Great honor. Uh, As for the newcomers, this is the best deal you're going to get in your whole life. And it, in my experience, it was it was the best thing. It was hard, you know uh, the, in the, in the first period of time uh, was hard, but I knew I knew when I was sober ten days that it was different. I had to stopped drinking for ten days, a lot of times. I had to stop drinking forever. A lot of times, you know. <laughs> and it would last maybe ten days. And I'm telling you, when I stopped drinking forever, before I came to AA, every day was worse than the day before. And on my tenth day of sobriety, I knew this was different. Because I hadn't drank for ten days and my life was better. I felt better. I, 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 it was an amazing experience. But my life, my feelings about my life, were a long time in catching up with the goodness in my life. The goodness, I always had a good life. I I didn't know I had a good life, but I always had a good life. Uh, I I didn't see it, and I didn't feel it. I lacked the power. By the way, for those of you that don't know me, and for the the newcomers, I know you all know this, but speakers, speakers are not authorities in Alcoholics Anonymous we're all speakers we all get to speak it's my turn tonight but it's going to be your turn later and uh, uh, speakers share their experience, strength and hope as they see it our authority is the book Alcoholics Anonymous that's our textbook And, and that describes what we believe about the disease of alcoholism and it describes in wonderful detail our program of recovery. And knowing that speakers aren't authorities, when I'm asked to speak, I make up stuff and say that it's in the big book in order to add credibility to what I'm saying. I make up stuff. I make up page numbers. I appreciate the fact that my talk is being signed because when I'm allowed to speak in AA I like to watch what I'm saying.
1: <laughs>
0: and I can do that here.
1: <laughs>
0: On page 45 in the big book it says lack of power is my dilemma." And I didn't know really what they were talking about when I first heard people say that and I first read that. But I do know this now. I, in and of myself, all my life, I lacked the power to feel good. I lacked the power to see goodness in my life. I felt bad. and, And I felt bad about everything in my life and, and there were, there were, I tried to feel good I tried to do things I tried to get you to do things that if you would have done it I would have felt better <laughs> but you see I lack the power to get you to do that I, I lack the power to even let you know I lack the power to really know what I wanted you to do but I knew what you were doing was not what you needed to do <laughs> you needed to do this other thing And I lack the power to tell you and convince you. And when my sense of well-being is contingent upon your doing what I see you should be doing and I lack the power to get you to do that it pisses me off. (laughs) Now I may act nice but it don't make any difference if I act nice or if I get angry. As long as I am directing what I'm doing to get you to do what you should do, I feel bad. And I discovered if you drink whiskey, you feel good. You know that's I, I discovered that for sure. I was 12 years old when I discovered that. Now I don't know in the fourth edition of the big book what the page number is, but it's uh, but it's uh, page. 569 in the third edition <laughs> <laughs> the Pemex 2 is called the spiritual experience and spiritual awakening in that they describe a spiritual experience in language like it involves a change of consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook change of consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook now let me ask you is that about a half of a half a pint man it was for me drinking whiskey was a spiritual awakening my consciousness changed and I, I had a complete change in attitude and outlook it was wonderful Further validation of this being a spiritual awakening is on that same page where it says, This experience is frequently accompanied by a sudden spectacular upheaval. (laughs) My (laughs) noise was. When I was a kid in this little town, I'm a native of Los Angeles, but my folks were Oki six or seven times over, and, and uh, I was born in Alhambra, California, but I was raised in a little farm community about 45 miles southwest of Wichita, Kansas, in what we believed was the Bible Belt. Now, as it turns out, as you travel further and further around the country, that everybody thinks they're in the Bible Belt. The people in North Dakota think they're in the Bible Belt. In South Dakota, in Nebraska, in Kansas, in Oklahoma, in Texas. Well, let me say this. California knows it is not in the Bible Belt. And California is happy about that. And I'm happy for you. But everybody else in this country thinks they're from the Bible Belt. So nobody knows where the Bible Belt is. But I'm here to tell you it buckles about 45 miles southwest of Wichita, Kansas. (laughs) in the Methodist Church. Where I learned about God and a lot of other stuff. Uh, when I was a kid in this little town, I went to a travel movie, and the movie was about training wild elephants in India. And they started out training the baby elephants by putting a rope around the right front leg and snubbing them up to a big tree and letting the baby elephant fight the rope and fight the rope and fight the rope and fight the rope and fight the rope, fight the rope, fight the rope, fight the rope until it came to believe, through its experience, that it's futile to pull against the tight rope. Once the baby elephant learned that, they went ahead with its training, and at the end of the movie, they showed a big elephant helping harvest the forest with a harness pulling trees over and pulling the trees to hell out of the forest. And at the end of the day, in order to hold the big elephant, they put a rope around its right front leg, drove a relatively short stake deep enough in the ground that when they wrapped the rope around the stake, the rope would get a little tight on the big elephant's leg. And because of the limiting belief they had imposed on the elephant, it won't pull against the tight rope. The stake didn't hold the elephant. The rope didn't hold the elephant. The belief they had imposed on it is what held the elephant. It was the belief. And I'm telling you, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous approximately 976,402 approximately. They the elephant beliefs, Just like that. Stuff I didn't know I believed. Yet I believed it so deep without even knowing it. That I behaved like what I believed was true. And I expected what had been imposed on me to believe to happen. And when I couldn't make it happen, I knew I was doing something wrong. When I was a baby elephant, I was told that I had to make my life work. And I was told that in many different ways. I was also told in the Methodist Church that God and I were separate. I was in this little town in Kansas, and God was in heaven. And so I'm separate. I was told God was an anthropomorphic being up behind the pearly gates in the streets of gold, and God cared about me, and God wanted me to live a certain way. And if I would live that certain way, while I'm trying to make my life work, if I run into adversity, if I've done what God wants me to do, then I can beseech Him in prayer to help me go through this adversity if I've done what he wanted me to do. I never got the hang of doing what he wanted me to do. Most of the time I didn't want to. I was just too absent-minded to think about that. I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And then I got in trouble, and I'd ask God for help, and he wouldn't help me. Uh, I can remember the first time I asked God for help. I was in the Methodist Church. Uh, uh, I was four or five years old. And uh, uh everybody in the Methodist church that day asked God to help us by not letting it rain. We did not want it to rain today because harvest started tomorrow. Wheat harvest started and we gotta have a dry field to get the equipment in so they can harvest the wheat. We all prayed and we all did the best we could with the prayer. That afternoon it rained. That afternoon it hailed, that afternoon the wind blew and destroyed all the wheat and some of kind of candy. And while nobody pointed the finger at me, I knew whose fault it was. I knew what, who wasn't doing what you have to do to have God answer the prayer. And I thought the rest of you were. I knew you were, but I knew I wasn't. Now, if you're four or five years old and you've assumed the entire responsibility for the destruction of the Kansas wheat crop, <laughs> what you have is an ego problem. I had the ego problem I didn't know I had the ego problem I knew I wasn't doing what I needed to do and and I knew I wasn't uh, uh, living up to my potential I really was living up to my potential because I was potentially an alcoholic (laughs) and I was living up to that but that wasn't the potential they expected me to have my my whole family was from Germany and I don't mean the happy Bavarian beer garden, German, I mean, Persia the Nazis, the disciplinarians, the rigid ones, who beat the hell out of you, you know. And, uh, that don't make you an alcoholic to be beaten, but I never got where I like being beaten. <laughs> I understand some people do, but I'm not one of them. I don't know what the hell's the matter with them. didn't make me feel good. I felt bad. Beat me today and I'll feel bad. Uh, I didn't feel good as, as, a, as a person in my family. I didn't feel good in school. I didn't feel good in any area of my life and I drank whiskey and I felt good so I drank whiskey. That was, it was that simple. And, and first it was like No mouth, used to say, to get a little buzzy and, and dance with the dollies and have a good time. And, and I did that. And and, uh, uh, and breathe on them to show them I was drinking a bit and then later on throwing up on them. And uh, I know it. It's terrible. I never understood why I threw up. I Usually when I got in the Navy, I was running with some guys. They could drink a turn and never throw up. I said, how do you do that? The guy said, well, what you got to do? He said, now, I don't ever get sick, but what you got to do if if you've been getting sick is eat a quarter of a pound of butter before you go on liberty. And that, of course, made sense to me. I know it. I know it. But I ate the butter. Now, I threw butter up just the way you would expect me to. And I asked somebody else. They said, put bitters in your boots. Put bitters and it won't even get the hiccups. I threw up bitters just the way I threw up butter. <laughs> and I was in AA less than a year when I heard Norm Alfie first talk, and he's talking about flashing on Seven High. And uh, I, I and it dawned on me. Hell, I ain't grown up since I stopped drinking whiskey. It was the whiskey that was causing me to throw up. But my mind would never let me acknowledge that whiskey was the problem. I I didn't know that I was into that kind of denial, but I do know I believe whiskey was the answer and the only answer for goodness in my life. And it was the only answer for goodness in my life until I found Vinny's. And then the combination of booze and Vinny's was the only answer. Booze and Vinny's solved every problem in my life. (laughs) With the possible exception of controlling my body functions. I <laughs> that help
1: there
0: I uh, fell in love with Patricia Ingram when we were in the seventh grade young red headed girl and uh, I really fell in love with her I loved her all the way through junior high and high school she was my girlfriend in seventh grade but after that she started going with people with class and and uh so you know a few of the older boys and, and uh but God I loved her and, uh, and then uh, when I was 20 years old and uh, was getting out of the Navy I, I, she had broken up with her boyfriend and I courted her and I won and we got married when we were 20 years old and uh, uh, we were married 19 years when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, she needed Al-Anon when we were in the 7th grade <laughs> of that and, and she never heard of al until I came to AA so let me just tell you my drinking was always a problem for her and she made it hard on me uh, And and uh, but but she knew she knew when she married me that a drink and, and she knew some other things about me that needed fixed but she certainly she was sure she could pick them and uh, I, I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know she couldn't. But uh, things got things got kind of bad between us from time to time. But I've always loved her, except when I hated her.
1: 1959,
0: I got a job as an entry-level engineer, and uh, we had two kids by then and uh, uh, this, this was a good job and there were some things about the job that I was very good at but part of this required writing technical reports and I didn't know what the hell to put in the report I, I, I had, not had, I'd had no training on writing technical data and I, and, and I just didn't you know I didn't have a foothold and so I was just immobilized and whether you call it writer's block or just not knowing what you're doing. But I could not write the report. And my boss has criticized my performance for my report writing. And all reports have to be done by Friday. That's a rule. And uh, this one week, it was Wednesday night and I haven't even started on this week's report. So I took some work home to work on it and this was unintentional but when I sat down in the kitchen to write the report I, I couldn't think of how in the hell to get started and I got up and went to the refrigerator and there was about a half of a half a pint of whiskey that was left there from last weekend's patio party which mostly I just drank beer at the patio party I was the captain of the beer, beer part and uh, uh, but one of the Navy Chiefs had left a pint of whiskey over there and, and, and at our house and, and Pat had put it in the refrigerator about half and I drank about half of Brandy's uh, booze and, and all at once I started knowing how to write the report. <laughs> really. And I finished that and I sat down and wrote a report using technical vocabulary that I didn't even know I had. But I knew this was a good report. I got it, you know, I had it. And I wrote the report, I took it to work. They typed it up, they circulated, everybody that had to approve my report approved it. A couple of days later, my boss's boss came by and said, did you write this report? I said, yes. He said, we knew you could do it if you'd just give us the effort. Now I distinctly remember thinking, effort your ass it is fruity. But I also distinctly remember knowing, don't tell him whiskey, let him think effort. The important thing is, I know it's whiskey. And it's whiskey. And I write good reports. And pretty soon I discovered you don't have to wait till Wednesday night to start this process, you can start it any day at lunch. Then Insidiously, you go along and you discover you can start at any time of any day. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, someplace, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and in the meantime, I went from an entry-level engineer to a process analyst, to an engineer to a senior engineer. And then I left Junior Dynamics in 1966 and went to Hughes in Culver City as kind of a senior engineer, senior senior engineer, and then an engineering manager. And that's not setting the world on fire by any, any stretch of that was a steady progression of promotions, which happened to me because I drank whiskey. <laughs> Flat truth. Now, it got to the place where I had to drink so much whiskey before I got brilliant. <laughs> that my boss and my wife thought I was drunk, and I started to get in trouble, and I stopped getting promotions and in nineteen seventy two I got demoted. Pat was always going to leave me. she was always going to divorce me and leave me and and, and she never did, but she, but when she had threatened to i 'd quit drinking forever. Right anyway, I got demoted, and now she's going to leave me and take the kids in in the spring of nineteen seventy two and and God, I didn't want her to do that. And, and uh, I, I, but I told her, listen, if I can't drink at all, then we'll have to. I'll have to go because I'm not going to. I tried not to drink at all, and and it don't work. I won't drink more than a half a pint a day. But I'm going to drink a half a pint a day. And she stayed. She believed it. <laughs> she believed down there everything I told her. You know, and. Uh, uh, soon after that, I had convulsive seizures. I know that during one of my episodes, uh, uh, she was someplace she wanted to go very bad, and she said, "Please come home on time. Please take us to this thing." And I didn't come home on time. And by the time I got home, I said, damn drunk. And I mean, I, I had not wanted to, but I was drunk. And I went into the shower to take a cold shower to get sober and I kept just about to pass out and I had overdosed on vintage too and uh, I've my tongue in order to keep from becoming unconscious because I, I knew if I went unconscious I'd die and, and when she found me I was in the corner of the shower slumped over blood running down my face the shower running on me and after that she never talked to me about my drinking again now In Al-Anon, they learned that. (laughs) I didn't, you know, and and I didn't know how she learned it until I heard her Al-Anon talk. But I'll tell you, it works. As long as you argue with me about whether or not it's all right for me to drink and I'm justifying it, then by God, I'm right. You know, if you'll fight with me about it, I'm right. I'm always right. It's very important to me to be right. And it's important to me. If you don't think so, that you know you're wrong.
1: <laughs> I learned that when I was a baby elephant.
0: <laughs> and if I could just get you to admit you're wrong, then I'd have something like a sense of well-being that I could never get her to say it. And so there was the battle going, and now the battle stopped. And if the battle stops, even I could see Maraniss' behavior is unjustified. So this Al-Anon deal of letting the guy go really worked. But she didn't do it because of Al-Anon. And I heard her al non talk the first time. I found out why. A month or so before this particular episode, she had decided that the only solution to her and the kids' problems was Howard was going to have to die. <laughs> she sees me in the shower... And all at once, she concludes, he is going to die, and I'm not going to have to kill him. <laughs> and she just let me go. And uh, about all this has happened also, I, I had gotten hopelessly in debt, and she didn't know it. And, and I had borrowed money from the credit union in order to pay money on a credit card that she didn't even know about and the credit card was then double the limit so I had to borrow more money from the credit union to pay the credit card and now I've got everything doubled the damn limit and I'm not making enough money to pay this credit card off out into infinity. And I got all these other problems going on and I had an opportunity to sell some equipment that I didn't own. <laughs> equipment that I found <laughs> right before Hughes <you> lost it <laughs> and I gave it to a fence in the Tattletail for sell and uh, ten days later I woke up on July the 23rd or 24th of 1972 just the way it says on page 8 in the big book it was quicksand all around words could not express the sense of bitter remorse that I felt and I had been in the tail the day before trying to sell some more test equipment because I hadn't got the money for the other test equipment that I had found. And I woke up that morning thinking, Jesus Christ, you shouldn't have anything in tattletale because they know you work at Hughes, And if you've got test equipment, they know you're stealing it. And then, ten, day, you know, then it ten days after I found this equipment, it dawned on me that morning that Hughes didn't own the equipment was owned by the federal government. Its value exceeded the limit that would ultimately result in uh, an investigation by the FBI, and uh, I experienced on realizing that what the Big Book describes as pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, (laughs) and I knew I had to stop drinking until this blows over. and then genius that i am i remember pat at one time told me when she had gone to a lawyer to get things put in her name and found out we didn't have anything uh, <laughs> he had told her you don't want a divorce and get him to go to a.a. he he sounds like an alcoholic and she told me that and i said "Hey, alcoholics are not just for people whose lives are in trouble <laughs> because of the drinking, our life isn't in trouble. And, uh, and I knew she'd be pleased if I went to AA. So I went to AA. I called this guy who I thought was the president of AA worldwide. And uh, I asked him if, uh, if he would take me to an AA meeting. And, and uh, uh, he said he would. He said, are you drinking now? And I said, no. And that was the truth. I just finished a half a pint. <laughs> but right now I'm not drinking <laughs> you know I came to know and love the guy a lot and I can just see him smiling on the other end of the phone when he said well try not to drink anymore <laughs> <laughs> uh, I drank three more half a pints and uh, I took a lethal dose of Bennies every day I'd take a lethal dose of binnys they weren't even working anymore but I couldn't not take them and, and I just burned out but by 6 o'clock in the evening I'm loaded again and I'm thinking things aren't that bad I don't know what the hell I called AA for I hope this guy don't show up but he showed up I got in the truck he drove that's just what I expected the president of AA worldwide to be driving it was a beat up pickup truck and I got in and he said uh, and he said hi I'm Chinny and I said, we've met before, Timmy. I said, I want you to know I am not an alcoholic. <laughs> and he smiled. He said, I don't know if you're an alcoholic or not, but we're going to the right place. <laughs> and he took me to the Culver City Studio Group, where the greatest people in AA used to... Yeah, they, yeah, they were the wonderful, wonderful bunch of old-timers. It was, one of the first, it was the oldest meeting, probably, on the West Los Angeles side. And, uh, and I was warmly welcomed. And I, uh, you know, I had become a person, I had become a person who was very cynical and, and who was sure that no one was telling the truth about anything and, and, uh, everyone was a phony. And somehow I walked into AA and I met Frank Giroux and I knew he wasn't a phony. And I was welcome. And I had the feeling that I was welcome. And, uh, and he and, and Kenny and him, you know they were just wonderful and everybody there was wonderful and I was telling everybody I'm not an alcoholic. You know, all saying that's okay you're in the right place. <laughs> There's one guy named Charlie Pitts and I don't ever know what happened to Charlie but he was, he was wonderful to me that night. I said well I'm not an alcoholic and he said you know you don't have to be an alcoholic to be a member of the Culver City Studio Group. The only requirement to be a membership in the Culver City Studio, which is a desire to stop drinking. And if you have the desire to stop drinking and you think you'd like to be a member, that's the only nomination, that's the only vote required. You're in. If you want to be in, you're in. If you have a desire to stop drinking, I want you to know that that your place is here at Alcoholics Anonymous. Whether you're here or not, your place is here and this is true of every one of us nobody can take your place in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous we each have our own place and he said that and it was uh, I, I know I was drunk but, but I, I felt welcome and they started the meeting and, and I'm telling you that at the time I didn't know this about myself for a long long time uh, uh, as, as, uh, as Jerry said the other night you know it's It's in retrospect that you know we learn as we go along and then we see in retrospect. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I believed that my real problem was I have an inferiority complex and if I just thought better of myself than I did, I'd be better off. I had no idea that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous somehow with no basis in fact to support this. I believed somehow that I already know it all. Now that's unusual for newcomers. I don't think I don't think there was one like me before or since. But I'm telling you, when I first heard chapter Five, I remember thinking, when they said "God," you know, well, first they said, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling and powerful. And I remember thinking, "Cunning, Alcohol can't be cunning. Cunning requires intellect. Alcohol doesn't have an intellect. They've got that screwed up. (laughs) Then they said, but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. God, I thought, God. They said God. I learned when I was a baby elephant that Alcoholics Anonymous says higher power. They don't even use the word God. I must be in the wrong (laughs) branch. And then I said and they just got to saying alcohol is powerful and now they say God has all power well you can't have that both ways if God has all power then alcohol don't have power and if alcohol has power God doesn't have all power he just has all power except the power that alcohol has (laughs) now the only trouble with this for the newcomers is when you're doing that, you're missing ship that could save your life.
1: <laughs>
0: and I, you know, but there was no other, I'm telling you, I know for certain, I know for certain that this was the only place in the world for me to come where I could recover. Because every place else I had ever been, they told me, what was wrong with me? Right before they helped me, whether it was the principal, the minister, or the psychologist, right before they helped me, they told me what was wrong with me. And as soon as you tell me what's wrong with me, I have slammed shut the mind. And I no longer like you. I'm no longer going to listen to you. Get off my back. That has not happened to me in An Alcoholics Anonymous from the very first up till now essentially that's true you guys have told me about you you told me what you used to be like what happened to you and what you're like now and I can see that in me I can see me you made it safe for me to see me when you tell me about you the one alcoholic talking to another. It's a magic that you don't find any else because nobody else knows what to say. But when you tell me you have a knot in your gut, I'm amazed. Because I've had a knot and I told a psychologist about the knot in the gut for $65. You don't know what the hell that is.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't either, but you have it and I have it, you know.
1: Uh,
0: they never told me that I was an alcoholic but they said they were and they said alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking they said the loss of control is characterized by a physical reaction to alcohol that once we start to drink a phenomenon of craving develops and we keep drinking and that coupled with that craving is the insane obsession that somehow some way this time it's going to be different and a guy named Chuck Ennis, who back then had 25 years, about 50 some years now. Chuck Ennis uh, uh, talked about after, uh, after work going to the backstage bar. Little MGM, he's an editor at MGM, film editor, and he went to the backstage bar. Had two drinks, three at the most. Next thing you knew, last call for alcohol. And, and I'm thinking, God, that's just like the caterpillar. I mean, I've done that forever. And he talked about the phenomenon of craving. And he talked about stopping by Tuesday night to do the same thing. And Wednesday night, why? Because he had an insane obsession but this time he's just going to have two or three at the most. And I'm seeing I am like that. At the break, though, I tell Kenny that took me to the meeting, I said, You know, I, I don't think I ever craved to drink. I don't remember. If, if a craving is what discriminates between alcoholic and non alcoholic, I think I'm a non alcoholic. <laughs> And he said, did you drink when you start in the morning, did you, uh, uh, did you drink? I said, yeah, yeah, I drank in the morning. I said, he said, why did you drink? And I said, because I wanted, I wanted to get, I, I was sick and I was, you know, I could relax. I could, react. I, could I, I could get a good feeling. And he said, well, you got that good feeling? Did you keep drinking? I said, yes. But it wasn't because I craved one. It was just because I wanted one. <laughs> He said, there's a class of alcoholics. A lot of the members of this group right here. He said, that alcoholic, when he starts to drink, keeps slugging them down so fast that the cravings don't have the real opportunity to set in. <laughs> I immediately knew I was one of those alcoholics. I was glad that I was an alcoholic. They spent the rest of the meeting talking about God. And... Uh, you know, they did it wonderfully and, and I kind of got the idea they were doing it for me but uh, they read at the top of page 92 where it says emphasize the spiritual future uh, to the newcomer About emphasized whatever concept of God the newcomer has will work for them provided it makes sense for them and I remember that because I knew that the God I had been taught in the Methodist, the Baptist, the Faker the Christian and the, and the, and the uh, Catholic and and the Christian Science Churches had not made sense to me. And they tried try to make sense to me, and then I'd kind of get it, and then I'd, it wouldn't. I wouldn't. I could act like it made sense, but it didn't. And I, I never got it. And, and uh, uh, they said to the, to the newcomer, don't, don't worry about this higher power thing. Just take it till you make it. Act as this. And I thought, shit, that won't work. I've done that in all the churches and that just don't work for me. Then they said, Oh Jim had 65 years of sobriety and Jim's higher power was either a doorknob or it was a light bulb. I think, Jim's weird. <laughs> when a guy gets up and says, my name is John, I'm an alcoholic. Hi, John. They call me John the Baptist. And they call me John the Baptist because my higher power is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I found Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and higher power in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get up in the morning and I ask Jesus to keep me sober. And at the end of the meeting, at the end of the day, I ask, I thank Jesus for that. And I want to thank Alcoholics Anonymous right now for giving me back my higher power and the wonderful life I have. And... Uh, listen I'll mean, tell you uh, after the meeting though now I also thought well that's good for, that's good for John if John can con himself into that fantasy that'll work for him but I've got to live in the real world because I already knew it all you see it helps if you already know it all then you can invalidate that and everything they said and, uh, and then you can be right again and and uh, uh, but after the meeting, I heard Leo, who had 25 years, well, yeah, Leo really had one year 25 times. But, uh, I never said that before, but now I wish I had that. Uh, but you guys know Leo, and Leo went over to John and says, John, I've told you, you've got to stop talking about Jesus Christ. You're going to scare away the newcomer. And I wanted to go over and say to him, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't, but I'll say it now. If you don't scare the newcomer away with the doorknob or the light bulb, I wouldn't worry about Jesus. because the doorknob worried me Jesus didn't worry me the doorknob worried the hell out of me I told Kenny afterwards I said well I'm not an atheist but AA won't work for me I said I'm an alcoholic but AA won't work for me and he said why and I said well because my higher power the God that makes sense to me don't sit in your steps oh I said no my higher power is the immutable laws of nature and inherent in the law is unlimited intelligence and power so that things unfold exactly in accordance with the requirements of the law. And prayer doesn't change the immutable law. So you can pray for it to rain. You <laughs> gotta let you off the hook for destroying the wheat crop. Now that's going to rain in accordance with immutable law. Kenny said, that's wonderful, Howard. You're going to be able to help me with God, but can you not drink? I said, yes, I can not drink. He said, you've got to stop taking Vinny's, too. <laughs> well, I didn't even tell him I'd take a I don't know how I knew. And as he noticed, I said the same things over and over real fast. Uh, yeah. He said, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was was like you. I I wasn't going to do the steps. But he said, I, and I believed I was going to have to live my own life. I was going to have to make my own life happen. But he said, I learned that the things I was doing at the time I came to AA did not make my life happen. It was destroying my life. So I stopped drinking and I stopped taking boonies and I started listening to meetings like someone would who wants to learn some new answers for how to run their own life and make their own life better. And he said, I heard, I heard, I said I had to go to lots of meetings because most of the stuff I heard didn't fit me. But he said time and time and time and time and time again, I would hear somebody say something and I wouldn't even know I had that problem until my head said, hey, if you would do that in your life, your life would be better. And he said, then I, when that came up in my life and I did that, my life was better. And he said, next month, later this month, I'm going to take, I'm going to take an eight-year take. He said, I thank God for that. Working through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me sobriety. And, and, uh, but he said, I want, you to, I want you to think about this, when you got in the truck, you said you were not an alcoholic. You went to one meeting, you got into the truck again, the first thing you said to me is, you are an alcoholic, but AA won't work for you. And I said, the book will tell you that that's how it works. You've changed and don't even know you've changed, and the other people see it. But if you didn't know you're an alcoholic and now you know you have, then that's the first step of recovery. And that's on page 30 in the big book. And, and uh, uh, I,
1: uh,
0: <laughs> I got drunk again. I, I stayed sober, went to meetings for a week, and then I got drunk again, and I was drunk for a week. And I sure as hell, when I got through with that, I looked back, and in a way, I'm grateful that I did, because I sure as hell convinced myself for rock-bottom certain, that I'm an alcoholic. And, and I came back, and, and I came back to listen to stop drinking stop taking bennies and to listen for new answers and I heard a guy named Tommy O'Meara an Irish Catholic you wouldn't believe it Tommy O'Meara Tom is the Finish. and uh, 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 Tom said if you make one mistake and brood about having done that then you've made two mistakes Jesus I, <laughs> I thought now that's something I should do then I heard Steve from San Diego say, I was 36 years in learning that all the people that I hated didn't feel it.
1: <laughs> no kidding.
0: No kidding. The big town kind of engineers should have thought of that, you know. The know-it-all should have thought of that. But I did not know it. I hadn't thought about it. And, and I, I thought that, you know, I'm not sleeping night and they are. And, and, and so I started trying to not brood about mistakes I made try not to make the same mistakes but try not to brood so much and try to stop hating people I asked how do you stop hating people and Patty Hicks, I heard 20 answers but I remember her she said I heard before Howard came. See, she was the one that used to tell me to sit down and shut up and listen and she's the only person that did that and she had 10 days on me and she always called me a newcomer. And, and, and it started out that night with saying, before how I even came to AA. Said, as lousy days on me. She said, I heard
1: <laughs>
0: I heard that you can't be hateful and grateful at the same time. And if you're a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous it's basis for being grateful. But she said, you have to work for it. Because an alcoholic can never be grateful. He doesn't have an enemy to be grateful if he don't make an effort to learn how to be grateful. And, uh, and I told everybody I didn't pray. God don't change things because people are in trouble and because they pray. And nobody cares. But it was important to me that you know I don't pray. And you don't care. But one guy said, I didn't pray because but I learned to meditate. I said, how do you meditate? He said, well, the best thing I've read on meditation in AA is, is step, step 11 and 12 and 12. So I read that. That's the St. Francis of Prayer, which is just exactly what I am not going to do. <laughs> but fact is, I been a newcomer, just back the newcomers here tonight, and the newcomers here tonight, and I back in, want to be a part of this thing. And we know that in order to be a part of this thing, we've got to do our best to do the deal. And so I read this, and one of the things it says is, uh, we, we picture our spiritual objective in our mind before we go out into the day to accomplish it. And, and, and he said, prayer, meditation, and self examination logically interrelated will, will build an unshakable foundation for life. So what I started doing, particularly in a crisis, was getting up early enough to bring into my consciousness the truth of what the first seven months of 1972 was like in my life. I was demoted, I took a 10% cut in pay, I was going to lose my job, I was going to lose my wife and kids, I was hopelessly in debt, I had convulsive seizures, a doctor had diagnosed me as being acutely intoxicated with probable alcoholic neuropathy, and I'm not only a candidate for hard time in the federal penitentiary, but my kids and wife are a candidate for the disgrace that's associated with that and there's nothing in my life my life is permanent and there's nothing in my life to stop the plummeting there is no bottom there. there's no bottom there's no end in this thing and then I would i bring that into my consciousness as truth because it was the truth and then I brought into my consciousness the truth that the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the plummeting stopped no more bad things happened in my life I felt like hell my feelings were a long time catching up with the goodness that the plumbing had stopped. My sponsor tracked down the equipment that I'd stolen and sold to my wife, and I went to the bank and borrowed the money, and, and, and I went to the place that had it and paid him. I never got paid for this damn stuff either, but, but I bought the equipment and I took it back, and, and my sponsor had suggested that I take it and tell the department manager that I had bringing it back he said don't just take it to the calibration lab tell them you're bringing it back and you need to make a direct them in. and uh and i told the guy and he said don't tell me that and i said but tom he said howard go home just quit in time and uh, talk to you in the morning next morning he called me in his office and he said howard i have the equipment extradited through the calibration that is in perfect working order, and I may not know where it's been recently, but I know it wasn't stolen because I have it. Isn't that right? I said, that's right. <laughs> he said, I've read the procedures, and the procedures make it very clear, we've got to fire anybody that steals from it. And there's no provision for bringing it back. So I don't want you to tell anybody about this, And I haven't. to say, for the newcomers. The next morning when I woke up, the weight of the world was off my back. And all day before that, I had known that this is the dumbest goddamn thing I could possibly be doing. I'm in AA so that I won't get caught. And here I am, taking this stuff back and admitting it. This is going to be nothing but trouble, and it doesn't make any difference if I stole it, just so I don't get caught. I don't feel bad about it, but I'm telling you the next day the weight of the world was off my back and I hadn't even known it was on my back and I felt good. I felt good and I didn't drink. I hadn't taken the bimmy and I felt good. And I don't know how long the good feeling lasts, but next month on August the 4th I'll have 30 years of Brian, and I'll tell you since that happened I've been able to bring into my food, into, into my consciousness the food of how good that made me feel. I remember how good that made me feel, and I'm feeling it right now, so when you bring it back, that's a wonderful thing, and you just keep doing this deal, you know, you just keep doing the deal, and and, and these good things keep happening. And uh, uh, I, I heard, I, you know, I started, I, I, I this is the first time, okay. <laughs> a little over a month ago I had open heart surgery with a a triple bypass and this is the first time I have spoken uh, since I had that and uh, I used to in my talk say that on the 1st of October 1974 I made a commitment that I would meditate for 30 minutes every day and bring into my consciousness the truth of the goodness that Alcoholics Anonymous has brought into my life so that I could feel grateful and have a sense of optimism to start my day and I used to say that I have not missed a day since the first of October 1974. Now that's not true because uh, I was zonked out for a couple of days and if I meditated I I don't know about it but I
1: will
0: tell you this Mary and Walt came in this morning and I found out one of the good things about having the heart root is somehow it gets more blood to your brain and the meditation is clearer and more certain and God I've had a good day just from the wonderful meditations that I had this morning and I'm not going to miss any days I'm going to stick right with it I'm sure if I, if I possibly can I'm going to meditate every day of my life because it has been a marvelous change in my life do it. Don't argue. You know, just read to step eleven and, and and do whatever you you know. But do it and do it every day. And gradually, you will be able to focus your attention as you go, go through the day on what you want to focus your attention on. And if the you know there's a law of uh, there's a law of life, and it's called the law of probability, uh, or the law of probable dispersal. The law of probable dispersal says that whatever hits the fan will never be distributed even then. It's also known as, the did that all land on me law. And as you're going through your day, when it all lands on you, if you practice meditation every day, you're able to refocus your attention on what you want to attend to rather than have what's happening dictate to you what you should be thinking um, I, I wasn't going to I don't tell this story but I want to tell it because I meditate now Pat and I are in love and, and Pat and I this year in September will celebrate 49 years of, of marriage we have the best marriage of anybody and we had fun and uh, and I'm, uh, 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 AA has changed my life beyond belief. Now, Pat believes something that she's wrong about. <laughs> and if I don't acknowledge the right stuff, she will get angry. Now, one of the things she believes is it destroys the transmission in a Honda Accord if you drive in third gear what the hell would the designer put a third gear in for just to destroy the transition I don't know and I'll tell you this if you drive in third gear and inadvertently pull onto the freeway and you have to sit in the overdrive she goes bananas and this one time she went bananas and she said just take me home I'm not going to ride with you again now when she does that because I meditate There's a love song that I say the lyrics to. That changes ever how I I, when she started on that, I used to just think that. What the you know? (laughs) Now I say to myself, "You gave your hand to me and you said hello, and I could hardly speak. My heart was beating so." And anyone could tell, you think you know me well, but you don't know me No, you don't know the one who dreams of you each night And longs to kiss your lips and longs to hold you tight To you, I'm just a friend That's all I've ever been, no, you don't know me For I never knew the art of making love Though my heart ached with love for you Afraid and shy I let my chance go by, the chance that you might love me too. You gave your hand to me and you said goodbye. I watched you walk away beside that lucky guy. Oh no, you'll never know the one who loves you so. No, you don't know me. And when I'm through, I know how empty my life would be without her in it, whether she's yeah yeah in about third year or not. And I know that I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I know that because I am. And I know that I have that in my life because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, the time came in AA when I discovered that I have to come to believe I have to work the second step. I'm nine years sober and everything that I think is going to make me happy, I have. And I got a promotion to my career objective. I'm the manager of the technical section in the systems engineering department. A hell of a good job. And they gave me a work assignment. It was commensurate at that level of responsibility and it was dreadful. I woke up dreading my life. And it's August and I'm going to have to make this presentation in October. And, uh... Uh, it's so, over, you know, and I try to meditate, but really all I was doing was obsessing on this damn <laughs> assignment. And then my timer went off and I'd go to work, but the, about the third day, about the third day, at the end of the meditation, I had a sense of well being. Now there's a committee, we've all heard about the committee, but there's stuff going on in my head, and part of it said, Why can't I wake up feeling this good? Why do I wake up feeling dreadful? And there's a higher self that's involved in this committee meeting if you give them an opportunity to express itself. And this morning it expressed itself in a vision or a fantasy whichever you're comfortable with. For the newcomer, let's just say I was fantasizing. But in my fantasy I saw a frozen lake and because it's my fantasy, I know for absolute certainty that the ice is as thick and as strong as the laws of physics will allow it to get. And I know that my life is to just simply walk across the lake. Walk across the ice a step at a time. Be careful, it's slippery. But if you know that the ice is thick enough to support you, you can cross in confidence and if you don't know that you'll dread every step of the goddamn way. And I knew I had to come to believe that every aspect of my being is supported. Now the things I have gone through to convince you, to, to but I've worked at it, and I've been working at it now for, for uh, uh, nearly twenty-nine years, twenty-one years. and. Uh, The big book says the perfectly logical and yes I have decided to accept this as literal truth. The perfectly logical assumption is that underneath the material world and life as we see it, there's an all powerful guiding creative intelligence. Now I always knew that as far as the material world was concerned. But I believed I had to make my life work. My life as I saw it, I had to make work. That's not true. I lack the power to make my life work. I am given the power to participate using spiritual principles in a life that is unfolding into goodness as required by the constant and the pervasive presence and power of God in my life. And my life is good. And, and I feel the goodness. And that's a tremendous gift from Alphoharist Anonymous. I read a book on meditation which says whatever way you find God, that's the right way for you. If you think God out intellectually and become convinced of God, that's the right way for you. Or if you just feel certain of the presence of God, in your soul. That's right for you. But then the guy said, Remember, wherever you see God pass, go mark that spot and set in that window again. See? Alcoholics Anonymous is my window. I have no other window. This is where I came to see God pass. And I love you for it. Thank you very much for letting me show